You're listening to Life, the Universe, and Everything Else. Today on the show, we talk about patent medicine. Life, the Universe, and Everything Else explores issues of science, critical thinking, and secular humanism. If you have questions or comments about the show, or you'd like to suggest a topic, you can find us on Twitter or Facebook, or send us an email at lueepodcast at winnipegskeptics.com. Show notes and references can be found at lueepodcast.com. My name is Jen Newman, and with me today I have Laura Creek Newman. Hi there. Lauren Bailey. Hello. And Ashlyn Noble. Hello. Today we're talking about patent medicine, and many patent medicines in particular. But first, uh, we're going to start off with a a brief introduction, brief to my standards anyway, as to what patent medicine really is. So uh, when I say patent medicine, what am I talking about? The stuff that Patent Oswald brings to market. (laughs) Patent Oswald? Yes. (laughs) So generally speaking, uh, a patent medicine is a, uh, well, it's become sort of a derogatory term for uh, a commercial remedy that advertises a cure for one or often many medical ailments, often made with cheap ingredients and sold at a high cost with a reckless disregard for safety or efficacy. Many people, uh, myself included, until I started looking into this, uh, think that the term patent medicine comes from a medical patent, but apparently it actually, the term predates medical patents. Chemical patents, in the United States at least, were not in force until the 1920s, whereas patent medicine as a phrase is older, originating in the late 1600s. So the patent in question refers to letters patent, uh, which uh, were typically issued by a government or a head of state. And in some cases, they could form something similar to what we would call a patent today. But they came in several forms. Sometimes they would be an official endorsement of uh, quality or of the purveyor. A letters patent could simply give a person or corporation some Uh, official status, uh, such as monopoly over the sale of a particular product, in the case of patent medicine. So, uh, in most cases, when we hear something referred to as patent medicine, this is uh, the phrase being used informally, with no actual letters patent being issued. Patent medicine is also called uh, a nostrum, uh, which comes from the Latin nostrum remedium, which means our remedy. And Patent medicine is often presented, uh, as I alluded to earlier, as a panacea or a cure-all, something that can basically address any medical complaint. Uh, On our way to lunch today, Laura and I actually rode past a medical clinic that uh, styled itself the Panacea Medical Clinic, and I got very mad. (laughs) Guys, don't do that! (laughs) It's a one-stop shop. Until the passage of the Food and Drug Act in 1906, uh, no law governed the sale of medical treatments in the United States. So Americans found themselves in a wild west of medicine, when the definition of remedy was murky and it was difficult to know who to trust, and a salesman at a traveling medicine show could make any claim without fear that he would be held responsible for the consequences, so long as he left town with the dawn. This, incidentally is the golden past that libertarian think tanks like the Goldwater Institute want to see us return to. But uh, more on that later. So when you think patent medicine, what is the, the one type of medicine that comes to mind? 
Snake oil. Yeah. I think of just like little bottles of stuff that had bizarre ingredients. Like I don't think of anything in particular. Those kind of like opaque copper colored uh, old glass bottles. Yeah. Uh, But uh, snake oil was uh, originally uh, the oil extracted from the fat of the Chinese water snake um, that has been used since at least the 1700s as a liniment for joint pain in uh, traditional Chinese medicine, with some evidence for efficacy as a topical analgesic and anti-inflammatory, although the, the literature is disputed on this fact as it often is for traditional Chinese medicine. Claims of traditional use, true or not, are frequently used to justify uh, medical claims that otherwise lack empirical evidence. And like many other purported traditional medicines, snake oil was rapidly adopted by quack medicine salesmen in the American frontier. And not just the frontier. When we think of medicine shows and when we think of patent medicine, we usually think of not just a wild west of medicine, but the literal wild west, right? Where mm-hmm. the, the law was in short supply and these charlatans would peddle their wares from town to dusty town, right? And this is largely a construction of popular culture, based to some extent in truth, but in fact the uh, most famous case of snake oil is Clark Stanley's snake oil liniment that was sold in New England. I will uh, read a little bit from the ad copy. It is quite something. For frostbites, chillblains, bruises, sore throat, bites of animals, insects, and reptiles, good for man and beast, it gives immediate relief. Clark Stanley's snake oil liniment is good for everything a liniment ought to be good for. <laughs> well, that's pretty circular. I love the word chillblains. I like the fact that e- even, even back then, certain medical claims uh, were maybe beyond the pale to actually make in print, and so they would just imply them. You know, the sort of things that you would use a liniment for, the sort of cures that you want? Well, we've got it. <laughs> <laughs> uh, if you go to the Wikipedia article for snake oil, uh, you can read uh, more about Clark Stanley's snake oil liniment. W- what I found quite odd is that there seems to be a lot of hand-wringing reluctance to call snake oil, like literal snake oil, to call it quackery. Uh, I don't know if the defendants of traditional Chinese medicine or, or maybe just a, a lot of, <laughs> a lot of the, a lot of the Wikipedia articles that I, uh, that I was reading to prepare for this segment, uh, often good links uh, or good jumping off points for research. Uh, were infected by the sort of uh, libertarian anti-regulation bias that you sometimes see even in skeptic circles. Uh, so that was that was an interesting flavor to uh, to get through. But needless to say, even if you buy the idea that snake oil has fair anti-inflammatory properties, uh, that ad copy is a bit much. Consequently, in 1916, ten years after the passage of the Food and Drugs Act. Stanley, who styled himself the Rattlesnake King, (laughs) he found himself in court. I will quote from a report uh, of the District Court of Rhode Island. Analysis of a sample of the article by the Bureau of Chemistry of this department showed it to consist principally of a light mineral oil, petroleum product, mixed with about 1% of fatty oil, probably beef fat, capsicum, and possibly a trace of camphor and turpentine. So, uh, in, in this sense, is actually uh, quite similar to Vicks VapoRub. <laughs> mm-hmm. uh, continuing. It was charged in substance 
in the information that the article was misbranded for the reason that certain statements appearing on the label of the article and included in the booklet accompanying it falsely and fraudulently represented it as a remedy for all pain and lameness, for rheumatism, neuralgia, sciatica, sprains, bunions, and sore throat, for bites of animals and reptiles, for all pains and aches in flesh, muscles and joints, as a relief for tic douloureux, and as a cure for partial paralysis of the arms and of the lower limbs, and as a remedy for paralysis and effective to reduce enlarged joints to their natural size, as a perfect antidote to pain and inflammation, and effective to kill the poison from bites of animals, insects, or reptiles, and heal the wounds resulting from bites of animals, insects, or reptiles, when in truth, and in fact, it was not. <laughs> wow. <laughs> that was a long list of things there. On June 15, 1916, the defendant entered a plea of nolo contendere, no contest, and the court imposed a fine of $20. Big money back in the day. Well, uh, in 1916, $20 is the equivalent to a little over 400 today. Okay. And they probably I didn't made... realize it was 1916. That's actually yeah. fairly recent. Yeah. yeah. They probably made significantly more than yes. that from selling this junk. <laughs> so in addition to exotic animal and plant ingredients, some actual, many invented, many remedies contained alcohol, cocaine, cannabis, or even simple herbal laxatives, all of which provided the patient with ample physiological evidence that the remedy was doing... something. <laughs> New scientific breakthroughs were often immediately seized upon by charlatans. A couple episodes back, I talked about the electrification machines of Albert Abrams, for example. And then we have radium. Radithor was a patent medicine from Bailey Radium Laboratories Incorporated of New Jersey, headed up by one William J.A. Bailey, a Harvard dropout. No relation. <laughs> Radithor was comprised of triple distilled water and a minimum of one microcurie each of radium-226 and 228. Bailey claimed that his Radithor, which he called Perpetual Sunshine, was a sure cure for impotence, among other ills. Good morning, good morning, it's great to stay up late. Good morning, good morning to you. Is there radium in there? At least one person is known to have been killed by Radithor. That would be steel baron Eben Byers, who died of radium poisoning in 1932. A Wall Street Journal article on the subject, uh, published some years later, was titled... The radium water worked fine until his jaw came off. <laughs> Byers was reportedly buried in a lead-lined coffin, and when exhumed 30 years later for study, his remains were apparently still highly radioactive. No kidding. So with that brief survey of the subject, we're going to uh, do a deep dive on a few patent medicines today, starting with Laura, who's going to tell us all about Lydia E. Pinkham's Vegetable Compound for Women. And a couple others. So just like for many other conditions, there was no shortage of medicines for female complaints. <laughs> Air quotes. <laughs> so some of these were marketed specifically for this reason, and many patent medicines included female complaints or women's issues as one among a long list of symptoms that they would treat or cure. One of the most famous of these, or one that became a well a household name, was Lydia E. Pinkham's Vegetable Compound. 
and it was also available as pills, but originally as a compound. It was available as a liquid. It was first developed in 1873 by a real woman named Lydia Pinkham, who was, I believe, a, a homemaker. And at the time, it was very common for people to cook up herbal remedies in their kitchen. It was uh, a bit of a necessity, if you will, because of a lack of medicine, um, a lack of funds, um, distrust in the medical system, and the understanding that a lot of the medicines available at the time were, in fact, very dangerous. And also a bit of a pastime there. So most people had a some kind of a home medical guide or an herbalist kind of guide. And so that was a common thing that people would do. So she set about making her own, uh, her own compound specifically for these female complaints. And she named it after herself. And she became not just the name, but the image of the product as well. So if you look up the product, all of the packages will have an engraving or a, a lithograph of her face. The original recipe contained black cohosh, life root, unicorn root, which I didn't even know there was unicorn root, but that's yeah. pretty cool. Sounds it's like a, a Harry thing. Potter potion. Yeah. <laughs> the root grows in the spiral. Oh, that's so cool. Yeah. Pleurisy root and fenugreek <laughs> oh, no. seed. I don't know what pleurisy root is. <laughs> Neither do I, but that doesn't sound good. Yeah. Pleurisy root is also known as butterfly weed. It's a, a plant in the milkweed family. Okay. So uh, many of those things are still in, like, bananas stuff that's supposed to make women better. Exactly. And so my guess is that she's one of the ones that pioneered it. Because, like I said, this was the name. If you're looking for a women's ailments medication, you go to Pinkham's. That's what you get. Well, it's pink for girls. <laughs> so that was the original compound. So what she would do is she would take all these herbs, she would mash them up, macerate them, steep them to uh, get the, the tea from it, if you will. And then she used alcohol as a preservative. So the original compound had 20% alcohol. And Pinkham and her company and family believed that the alcohol was actually a legitimate medicinal ingredient in this. And so right off the bat, 20% alcohol, <laughs> in a lot of cases, you know, especially the, the types of women's ailments that were out there, yeah, 20% alcohol would probably make you feel better, at least for a short while, right? It's one of the only things that helps me when I have women's complaints. <laughs> <laughs> so there you go, right there. The original claims of this product were that um, it was to help prevent or treat uterine ulcers. Side note, I hadn't really heard of the term uterine ulcers, but when looking up patent medicines, I read this a lot. So I'm really curious what was going on for women back then, but I don't hear that word anymore. Too much so, radium. Too yeah. much, yeah, apparently. Um, also preventing uterine prolapse, which would be common in that time, still common now. Reducing menstrual discomfort, um, reducing miscarriage was another one, and... Um, the idea of taking a medicine that's 20% uh, alcohol as a preventative for miscarriage is horrifying. Yeah. Yeah. But it had the black cohosh, Jim. Of the original ingredients, that's one that's still very commonly used mm -hmm. as an herbal supplement for women's health. And I've also heard people recommend fenugreek all the time. Mm -hmm. Fenugreek is yeah. super popular in the lactation yeah, community. Yeah, that's one of the things. So if you don't want to go on one of the um, pharmaceutical medications, that's one of the things that you hear. Um, fenugreek and milk thistle. Well, it has milk in the name. Oh, obviously. <laughs> Now, I will say that while the original compound did have the 20% alcohol, they did also make an alcohol-free version, and eventually they made tablets, because they did recognize that in some cases, for some people, having alcohol during those um, 
for their symptoms would make things worse. So it started off as just a general women's complaints, women's health sort of supplement. Uh, take it daily and you'll be better. And um, as it became more popular, the claims for it grew and grew, particularly their claims around fertility and for women being able to meet the societal and family expectations of themselves. So they specifically marketed to women with a woman on the bottle because a lot of they knew that a lot of women felt ignored by their male physicians and that there wasn't much out there for their male physicians. So they specifically marketed that way. But then they used their marketing to still put that ideal of the perfect mother. So they, on um, some of their advertising, they used the phrase, there's a baby in every bottle. <laughs> One ground up baby <laughs> per bottle. <laughs> they had to replace the alcohol with something. You know. <laughs> So that is Lydia E. Pinkham's vegetable compound. Now you might think, oh, they were so funny. Do you know what you can buy on Amazon today? Lydia E. Pinkham's vegetable compound tablets. (laughs) They do not contain alcohol anymore because that would be illegal. And they do advertise how very little of certain amounts of vitamins and minerals that it contains in it. I don't know if it's fortified or if it just comes from the herbs itself. Uh, But yeah, you can still buy them on Amazon. And if you look at the package, you can see that this has not changed a whole a whole lot since it was originally invented. Is there still a baby in the bottle? Uh, I don't think so. But it is still marketed for menstrual health and prevention of symptoms and and that. Lydia Pinkham was really the the prime marketer in this demographic there. Every woman knew of this and was using it. Well, we're still being ignored by our doctors, so... Yeah, and Lydia E. Pinkham is still raking it in, so... <laughs> was she, like, a real person, or was it a company that just... No, nope, she was name? legitimately a oh, real okay. person, and it was a, a marketing decision to use her name and her face to market to yeah, women. Yeah, I remember you said yeah. there was a... Film yeah, so, so she was middle-aged-ish, and the fact that she had sort of a grandmotherly presence was comforting to a lot of women, because it's like, this is a person who's been through what I'm going through, who understands my life. So the next one I want to talk about isn't specifically a women's complaint patent medicine, but it is important to know about, and it leads into the last one. So this one's called Piso's Cure for Consumption. Has anybody heard of this? No, it's, but that's amazing. It sounds like a really bad children's television show. Piso's <laughs> Cure for Consumption. So for anybody who isn't aware, consumption at the time meant tuberculosis. So basically, the, the premise of this medicine was that it would cure your tuberculosis. So it's really not all that different from a lot of medicines at the time. Like Jem mentioned, originally back in 1870-something, it was full of opium. Because what wasn't full of opium at that time? It was a liquid that you would drink. But then when Civil War soldiers were coming back, a lot of them were addicted to opium, and a lot of people didn't want opium-based products, and so this company took it out. They also heard, this company is really interesting, because they're one of those companies that is selling this stuff that's a scam, but they were always one step ahead of the law, so they knew when the law was coming in. So right around 1872, there was, um, they knew that opium was going to be banned in these types of products, so they proactively took it out, and they would use 
use that in their advertising. Now opium free. There's no morphine type ingredients in here to encourage people to continue buying their stuff. Well, they replace it with cocaine. No, no. So they said that they removed it. Now, the <laughs> other things that were in there... <laughs> At first, there was opium. They said they removed it. Then it was just sort of a tonic that people would take. The things that were in there, probably right from the beginning that they didn't tell people about, were alcohol, surprise, surprise, right. cannabis, and chloroform. Oh, Jesus. None of which were listed on the label. They make So this product was around before 1872, and these items were not listed on the label until after 1906. Hmm. So that's a long time. Of course, consumption was the biggest thing, but it would use savvy marketing. They would say all of these great things. They were a big user of testimonials for I tried everything and nothing worked except Piso's cure for consumption. But then they would state things that would say, we don't guarantee that all cases of consumption will be cured by this. And then they would go on and make some sort of a statement that, but if we're not treating consumption promptly and starting right away, dire results could happen. So they would use that statement to both say they are not, they're not liable for their product and you should use our product just in case. So they were very, very clever. A lot of these, these marketing tactics are still in use today mm -hmm. by natural health practitioners and people who are still peddling alternative remedies. Yeah, I was reading that a lot of these uh, marketing tactics were first used for patent medicine. Exactly, yeah. And I thought it would be actually a, an interesting topic to explore of different marketing tactics through the ages. Mm-hmm. And you see things like free giveaways. Pizos mm -hmm. was a huge promoter of that. So they would give away almanacs and toys for children. They would use different types of advertisements for based on what type of um, printed material they were they were advertising in to try to get different demographics there. And they were they're really savvy with the language. They even at one point commissioned Norman Rockwell to make an wow. advertisement yep. for them. Wow! And this was during the late 1920s. I believe so they paid a lot of money for that and they were making this just goes to show they were still making a lot of money in this time this again was a household name it was one of the biggest things out there they made a lot of money and because of their clever marketing and because of their savvy oh we'll just take this out because we see this is going to become illegal right away <laughs> um, they were top on the list of the precursor to the FDA so they were constantly being investigated there. So by 1951, the company was completely gone. You cannot get this one on Amazon. However, bottles of this for there's a, a whole community of uh, like bottle diggers. People yeah. dig around and look for antique bottles. And these types of bottles pop up time and time again. It was really, really popular in the U.S. But like I said, the the precursor to the FDA was chasing them down. So they, they went from being called Piso's Cure for Consumption to Piso's Cure to Piso's remedy, to Piso's tablets or cough and cold medicine. So they kept dropping down in what they were doing. And your mention of cough medicine reminds me of the link to prohibition and the fact that a lot of these remedies uh, were so highly alcoholic or filled with drugs, mm, yeah. uh, which made them especially popular during this time. Yeah. And, you know, you can you can link that back to today with medical marijuana as well, right? Yep. During marijuana prohibition, it's not to say that it can't be helpful in some cases. I'm not making an argument either way, but people are going to get it how they get it. 
Although, if you were drinking Pizzo's, you didn't know you were getting it. (laughs) (laughs) Well, not until 1906. Not until 1906, yeah. The reason that I wanted to talk about this, while this was a tuberculosis cure, is that because this company was so popular and made so much money, it's this company branched out into other products. Oh, and one of those products... <laughs> was there a toy line? <laughs> <laughs> no, they just gave those away. Right, yeah. <laughs> one of those products was called Makaja's Medicated Uterine Wafers. What? <laughs> <laughs> Made with your uterine lining. Whoa. No, no, they're for your uterus, not of your uterus. Hey, people still eat their freaking placenta. So yup. Did you eat them? Or did you? No, no. Pop them in. Pop them in. There you go. <laughs> they they did explicitly say on their pink package, not for oral use, <laughs> which is a really good thing when you look at their ingredients. Oh, no. So these were marketed as a treatment for uterine cancer, uterine oh, ulcers, prolapse, menstrual symptoms, you name it. But a really targeted treatment this time, right? right? Those those are all the same condition anyway, right? <laughs> so the, these wafers included a lot of ingredients. Alum, boric acid, aluminum sulfate, sodium sulfate, potassium sulfate, and a few other things. On the package, it lists that it has a pH between 3.0 and 3.5, so it's quite acidic. Yeah. If you read the instructions, it recommends that you use one of these at night, and then the next morning you douche with two liters of water, and it's it's very old-timey. And, and this one was actually recommended by doctors quite a lot. So in 1910, the Chemical Laboratory for the American Medical Association did a full analysis of these tablets, and their analysis stated, The mixtures of common and well-known ingredients are foisted on the medical profession with no hint as to their composition and with claims made that are not only false, but would immediately be recognized as absurd if their actual composition were known. So the images of the packages that you can find do list the ingredients. Now, I'm not sure when those packages were made, but probably at the beginning, they didn't include all of these things. So at best, some sources that I read said that it could be an antiseptic or a spermicide. So it actually did that. But in terms of treating your uterine cancer or ulcers, probably not going to treat an ulcer so well with more acid. I wonder if that is something that it might have been secretly marketed for. As in... Uh, Secret contraceptive? Yeah. That was not an uncommon mm-hmm. yeah. sort of thing, understandably. Uh, that could be, and that could be why doctors were using it as well. I don't know. However, one thing that sources did note is that while a lot of doctors knew about Pizos and knew that it was bunk, they didn't know about the connection of this product to the Pizos company. And so there was an understanding in the medical community that these products actually did something particularly before ingredients had to be listed, and that they didn't know that it came from a fraudulent source there. So that was a bit of a concern. And that puts that previous statement that I said into a little bit more context. I mean, these these medicated uterine wafers are not the only one. There were several other ones as well. But you can't pass up the opportunity to talk about medicated uterine wafers. Whenever I hear the word wafer, I think of those horrible... Necco wafers? The, the ones that you can take apart. There's vanilla, there's chocolate. Oh, those those uh, cookies? Yeah, yeah, I love those. That They're were so, so... Like, now I taste them, they taste like chemicals. Like, just yeah. chemicals. They, well, they, t- they taste like cardboard and sour vanilla somehow. Like they're addictive. I can eat a whole package of them i'm not i, I can't anymore awful. but when i think of wafers that is the first thing that comes to my yeah, head so too. i'm thinking of shoving these cookies 
I'm thinking of like those super dry communion wafers, the ones that can last a hundred years oh. that are like cardboard on yeah. your tongue. So that's what I imagine. Like fully dissolve up in the urine. I'm guessing area? so. I don't know. They did have detailed instructions about where to place it. And one of the sources was like, as if women would know what part of their vagina is this yeah. part. So who knows what was happening? And I mean, I guess for that this. would be one of the reasons why they wanted you to douche after if it didn't completely dissolve, get all the bits out. Oh, yeah. Oh. The things <laughs> they foisted up our hoo haws. Men. <laughs> hey, Lydia E. Pinkham was doing this too. <laughs> Well, I, I don't have any segue that can handle that, so I'm just going to pass it over to Lauren, uh, who's going to tell us all about bovenine. According to the vast reaches of the internet, the bovenine company has no beginning and no end. <laughs> it, bovenine is a flat circle. <laughs> it exists only as collector's bottles, postcards, and two curious medical textbooks that tout the use of a patented preparation as a cure for, well, everything. Before the bovenine company... The patent for this medicinal foodstuff was held by Bush's Fluid Food. That's the part that made me want to die. <laughs> <laughs> what is the definition of a fluid food? Well, the food there. that flows, you know. Be, be, be Ketchup? It, well, even uh, those little ice cream balls could potentially yep. be considered a fluid food. Dippin' Dots. Yeah, dip They and stick dots. together too much yeah. once yeah. they get out of the freezer. Amazing. So before it was Bush's Fluid Food, there was the J.P. Bush Manufacturing Company. Or maybe it was the A.P. Bush Manufacturing Company. Both are shown in advertisements. Ads for Bushes and Bovenine <laughs> go back to at least the 1870s in medical journals that included the Popular Science News and Boston Journal of Chemistry. They have an ad from 1888. And the Archives of Gynecology, Obstetrics, and Pediatrics from 1887. And that's where my trail went cold. There is no loving History of Bovenine fan page. No Wikipedia entry, huh? or really anything that exists about it outside of those textbooks, some merch, and hopefully empty bottles that are held in the National Museum of American History. The only constants I could find were that the companies were all based out of New York City, and the laboratories were all based in Chicago. We're going to put the mystery of the history aside for a minute, and take a look at what Bovenine was, what it did, and what it was advertised as doing. With a name like Bovenine, do we have any guesses on what made up this deep red elixir? Cow. Beef. <laughs> That's right. Beef blood. A bottle from the 1930s lists the ingredients as beef blood, glycerin, sodium chloride, and alcohol, 12%. So we're not up in Lydia mode here, but we're at 12%. <laughs> it's a Bloody Mary. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> it's blood, lube, salt, and booze, available now from your pharmacist. <laughs> Earlier preparations also included information about having mutton blood in them, but that seems to have been removed from the process around the turn of the 20th century. Wait, it had sheep's blood? Yep. Ovenine. <laughs> well, like it's too much like Ovaltine. Yeah. <laughs> That's gold, Jerry. Gold! Oh god, imagine adding chocolate to that. <laughs> they have chocolate bovenine and original. No! Let's get the information straight from Dr. Biggs, who, as the salaried scientist for the Bovenine Company, his entire time is given up to this experimental work. Consequently, his opinions, of necessity, must be of greater value than ones who may use Bovenine in a few isolated cases. 
Dr. Biggs, if he existed, worked in the field of hemotherapy, literally blood therapy. In radical opposition to those of the past centuries, who believed that bloodletting removed all of the diseases from the body, hemotherapy touted the idea that introducing blood to the body would cure it. We know, of course, that this works in the form of transfusions. Mm -hmm. But Dr. Biggs and Bovenin believe that you could get benefits from drinking or applying directly to the body in patent medicine form. Apply directly to the forehead. So they're, they're vampires. Pretty much. It's like the blood bank in, in Blade. Yes. Sorry, Blade 2. Or like uh, that uh, venture capitalist that uh, funded the destruction of Gawker magazine. <laughs> yes. Our panel here at LUEE consists of three vegetarians and one very picky omnivore. I'm sure we could all see how a preparation of beef blood could be a temporary relief for anemia or exhaustion, especially in a population who may not be getting a nutritionally balanced diet. But bovinine was purported to cure much more than that. In an 1895 advertisement, bovinine claimed chronic alcoholism and the morphine habit on account of the manner in which the tissues of the bodies are depleted, owing to the lack of nourishment, can be cured by the use of bovinine as it has been positively proved. By its use, the organs of the body resume a state of health, and the desire for morphine or alcohol subsides as the function of nutrition becomes normal. At wow. 12% alcohol by volume, <laughs> and with a rich meaty bouquet, I'd switch over. <laughs> it's prescribed by Dr. Biggs himself. <laughs> what is that, uh, that nutrition company that is constantly touting, like, liver for babies? That's the Weston A. Price Foundation. Weston A. Price oh. Foundation. This reminds me of something they would be peddling. Well, maybe they are what's left of Bush's fluid foods. The Bovenine textbooks, one simply called Bovenine, and one saddled with the longer Handbook of Hemotherapy with Clinical Reports 1902, compiled from private and hospital practice, Bovenine in medicine and surgery, a mass of facts easily verified in everyday practice by any physician or surgeon. <laughs> how? And I thought Darwin was wordy. <laughs> I love how they just use the introductory paragraph as a title in these things. In my work, people still do this, and it's my job to stop that. Both of these books offered Dr. Biggs advice on how to use bovinine to cure basically anything that ails a patient, either by feeding it to them, soaking a gauze bandage in it, and applying directly to the affected area. No. Apply directly to the forehead. No, don't mixing, put blood on you. <laughs> mixing it with peroxide and making a bovinine wash over the affected area, oh, no. or mixing it with salt water and spraying over ulcerative areas until they are healed. Ouch. There's, there's plenty more. Those are just some of the, the more common. An extant bottle lets us know that it is plain flavor. I'm dying to know what flavors they were adding to the blood. Vanilla? <laughs> strawberry? Bourgeon? One 1890s ad shows a woman napping beside a large window with a small wine glass full of red liquid beside her. The text reads... Look on me in my lassitude reclining, my nerveless body languid, pale and lean. Now hold me up to where the light is shining, and mark the magic power of bovinine. <laughs> when you hold this page to the light, her eyes open in the most scary way possible, and a see-through bull appears in the field outside her window. Printed on the ghost cow are the words, my life was saved by bovinine. What? Like a watermark? You hold it up to the light, yeah. Yeah. Weird. Pre-hologram holograms. Wow. Oh. That is super creepy. And saying my life was saved by bovinine on the cow is, well, <laughs> false. But it is thanks to the rhyme of that ad that I figured out the pronunciation was bovinine. <laughs> Not bovinine. <laughs> as I've been saying all week. <laughs> 
The tantalizing remainders of lawsuits and bankruptcies are all that remind us that not everyone was taken in by this patent medicine craze. The Medical Times and Register from June 30, 1894, assured readers that the Bush Company who placed bovinine in the market have been financially embarrassed. This is a base fabrication. In the first place, the Bush Company were bought out by the Bovenine Company some time ago, and there is no such company in existence as a Bush Company who placed bovinine on the market. The article goes on to talk about the esteemed character and management skills of Mr. Champney, who runs the Bovenine Company. I need to know all of the chicanery that brought the need for this blurb. How many times did the company go under, change their names, who bought out whom? What happened? I want to know. <laughs> <laughs> From what I can tell, the only time that bovinine was proved in court to be snake oil was in a court case called Misbranding of Bovinia, U.S. versus Bovinine Company, with a seizure date of July 21, 1917, and a court date of May 4, 1920. The Bovenine Company pleaded guilty to a violation of the Food and Drug Act and was fined $50 for importing mislabeled goods into Puerto Rico. Analysis of the sample provided showed that it was apparently a meat extract. But I would like to read you both counts of the indictment, if I may. Count 1 alleged in substance in the information that the article was misbranded for the reason that certain statements appearing on the label of the bottle falsely and fraudulently represented it as a treatment, remedy, and cure for anemia, nervous prostration, neuralgia, and any numerous symptoms of chronic gastric disturbances accompanied by insomnia and mental depression, when in truth and in fact it was not. Count 2 alleged in substance that the article was misbranded for the reason that certain statements included in the circular accompanying the article falsely and fraudulently represented it as a treatment, remedy, and cure for Here we go. Asthma, alcoholism, chronic inflammation of the respiratory organs, cardiac inflammations, heart disease, diseases of children That's when you have children and you <laughs> don't want them. <laughs> sluggishness of the bowels, St. Vitus's dance, cardia of the bladder, coughs and colds, general debility, atonic dyspepsia, Menstrual disorders, diabetes, chronic gastris, gastric ulcers, malnutrition, that one I'll give it, gastric anemia, nervous exhaustion, and effective as a tonic during the period of pregnancy to prevent difficult delivery and to prevent prolonged pupurnium, purpurnium, and complications after delivery, and effective to prevent consumption at the period of puberty, and effective as a treatment, remedy, and cure for phthisius, and menopause or change of life, and effective to prevent the development of pulmonary diseases, degeneration of the kidneys, suppuration of the ears, hypertrophy of the glands of the neck, fibrile ulcers, and infection of the blood, and effective as a treatment, remedy, and cure for loss of vitality, and effective to restore normal metabolism of the cells, to provide a perfect opsonic index. What is your opsonic index? My opsonic index, as we discussed previously, is ISTJ or INTJ. <laughs> Depending. And effective as a treatment, remedy, and cure for syphilitic ulcerations, varic ulcerations, tubercular ulcerations, fistulas, rectal ulcerations, osteonecrosis, deep abscesses, typhoid fever, antrisis, chronic colitis, and infantile cholera, when, in truth, in fact, it was not. <laughs> so. so. So the rattlesnake king says, I'll show you a patent medicine. <laughs> and Bovenine says, hold my beer. <laughs> <Yep>. <laughs> The Bovenine Company pled guilty to both counts, as I said, and received a $25 fine each for a total of $50. I cannot find a record of Bovenine past the mid-1930s. I assume as science got savvier and people had other things to worry about, you know, like war and <laughs> depression, this particular patent medicine was put out to pasture.
So that's bovenine. I didn't know anything about it until this week, and now I want to know everything about it. Um, the short-titled textbook is available for free on Google Books, and I have a link in the show notes. The longer one, you can order a reprint. Oh, wow. I am not ordering that. I am <laughs> Ooh, who's getting paid for that? Dr. Biggs. He's still alive. <laughs> There's no from longer. From all the bovening. Yeah, all the bovening. Yeah. <laughs> Kept him young. Well, Whoever published it, I guess. Maybe yeah. Dr. Biggs is just a vampire. Well, yeah. With all that Ooh. damn blood. That's... Like... Okay, what are the ingredients again? There is blood. Beef blood. Beef Glycerin. blood. Glycerin. 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 Salt. Salt. So, okay, salt. That was the salt last and one. Salt and alcohol. Yeah. Remember? Right? It's blood, salt, lube, and booze. So Laura mentioned one patent medicine that is still around, but there are actually a lot of them around us that we don't maybe realize. Angostura bitters have always been, to me, a mysterious cocktail ingredient that comes in a tiny bottle and probably tastes really bad. I was unclear on why anyone would purposefully embitter their drinks, but it seemed like a popular ingredient nonetheless. Bitters is apparently actually the name for a variety of herbal and botanical infusions, which I think sounds much more pleasant. Like if you wanna, if you ask me, would you like some bitters in your drink or would you like a botanical infusion in your drink? I know which one I would choose. The Angostura variety of bitters, now the most common in liquor stores here in Canada, were originally created in the Venezuelan city of Angostura, which is now renamed. They do not now, and perhaps never have, contained any part of the Angostura tree, and it's no longer manufactured in the original city. This led one article I read to remark that Angostura neither contains Angostura nor is it produced in Angostura. (laughs) Another tick in the legacy of misleading patent medicine names. As with many patent medicines, which is how Angostura bitters got its start, as you may have guessed, it is mostly alcohol. (laughs) It's actually sometimes subject to more strict rules than most alcohols because it's almost 45% ethanol. So like in some stores where they can sell like wine and spirits, they can't have it because of weird laws that are on the books. Mm -hmm. Uh, Almost no one drinks it straight up though, because that would be horrible. I have. (laughs) It was originally prepared by a surgeon to help troops as a stimulant and to ward off malaria but it quickly became a popular cocktail ingredient. It probably was not a very good stimulant, considering it's mostly alcohol, yeah. and it probably did not ward off malaria unless you had it in a gin and tonic. Yeah. <laughs> it needed more beef blood. <laughs> <laughs> it is actually listed as an ingredient in the recipe provided with the first recorded use of the word cocktail to mean a drink, where they defined a cocktail as any drink consisting of spirits, water, sugar, and bitters. So from the time that we've been calling cocktail cocktails, they have had bitters in them, which is pretty cool. During Prohibition and the Temperance Movement, even teetotalers would still drink bitters, because even though it was high proof, it was medicine. (laughs) Mm -hmm. There are also anecdotes of people putting it into lesser quality liquor to make it taste better, or of putting the bitters in even more alcohol to help the medicine go down. In a most delightful way. Take that spoon of sugar. (laughs) (laughs) Helping the medicine go down is where we start off with our next present day patent medicines. In 1772, Dr. Joseph Priestley, of what particular kind of fame? The great-great-great-great-great-great-great-grandfather of Jason Priestley? No. Maybe. I don't... I didn't verify this. <laughs> Possibly. No. No reason to think so, but let's assume <laughs> the case, nonetheless. He was the discoverer of oxygen. Ah! What were we breathing before then? <laughs> um, so Dr. Joseph Priestley 
the discoverer of oxygen, advanced the first practical way to duplicate nature's carbonation process. This was something that people had been attempting to do for a long time because mineral water and naturally carbonated water have been touted for their purported medical benefits for a long, 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 long time. Because they taste awful. Yeah, pretty much. If it tastes bad, if it's, you know, bubbly and something is going... I mean, you drink it and you burp. Something has to be going on. Right. Uh, So people wanted to figure out a way to make that outside of a, you know, a mineral pool. It helps my dyspepsia. Soda fountains began popping up in pharmacies everywhere soon after. They were, quote, an effective means of dispensing medications. Adding a small amount of flavoring along with some seltzer made medicine more palatable. End quote. So that's where we got highballs. This tactic was so effective that pharmacists claimed that people wanted the medicines whether they needed them or not, marking (laughs) the beginning of the soft drink industry. Ginger ale was perhaps the earliest soda, since ginger, as well as mineral water, has been said to have health benefits for eons. To prevent the bottled versions from popping when they were uh, bottled, they often had rounded bottoms, so they couldn't actually be stood up, uh, and so this Mm -hmm. would prevent the corks from drying out. So they had to be stored on their sides, oh. and so the corks would stay moist and they wouldn't be able to be forced off. Okay. The familiar crimped metal style bottle cap, um, so the ones that are still on most beer bottles, is actually uh, pretty old as well. I was surprised. They originated in 1891. Well, wow. So they've been around for a long time. Root beer and sarsaparilla soon followed, due in part to their potent flavor and presumed medical benefits. If something tastes that strongly, it must be up to something. Root beer was a brewed beverage before it became a soda, so it was, like, lightly alcoholic. And you can still make it that way. I tried it once, didn't end up very well. There was a Philadelphia pharmacist named Charles Hires who produced a concentrated liquid and sold it in small bottles starting in 1876. One of their early slogans was, Join health and cheer! Drink Hires root beer! (laughs) Yay! Moxie is a soft drink that can still be found in limited quantities, I think, in sort of the northeast of the states. New England. John Hodgman is a huge Ah, Moxie booster. Um, And it was originally marketed as a drink that contained extracts from a rare South American plant, (laughs) which was discovered by his friend, Lieutenant Moxie, and was supposedly a cure for brain and nervous exhaustion, loss of manhood, imbecility and helplessness, softening of the brain, locomotor ataxia, and insanity. Wow. There's there's a lot going on with that. Uh, <laughs> so much. Oh, boy. So if Look we... I know. I like I like the brain softening <laughs> part. Yeah, right? It. Like, is your brain supposed to be hard? <laughs> yeah. Like, what's going on? <laughs> Moxie can cure all of these things. Just drink up. Like, it was just a list of, like, insults a drill sergeant would yell at you. <laughs> well, it was discovered by his friend, Lieutenant Moxie. Yeah. <laughs> Lieutenant Dan. <laughs> And I, I debated with Dave whether I should say lieutenant or whether I should say it properly as lieutenant. lieutenant. <laughs> You'd never heard that pronunciation. Oh, really? Yeah. yeah. It's the States. So because if you lieutenant. read it, why would you ever presume that it's pronounced I know, that way? it's bizarre. It's so... When Just, I first read it, I had no idea that those were the same words. Mm-hmm. Because I'd heard lieutenant, mm-hmm. and I read lieutenant, and I'm like, oh, how do you spell lieutenant? How does I-E-U come into F? Well, it comes into English from the French, obviously, Mm -hmm. but imagine pronouncing it with, like, a a very thick English accent (laughs) uh, while chomping on a cigar, and maybe you can get halfway to left in it. But yeah, for our our listeners' edification, Canadians do indeed, well, older Canadians now, 
uh, say, uh, Lieutenant. I'm not that old. Uh, Canadians involved in the military will say Lieutenant, uh, and uh, Canadians who watch Star Trek will say Lieutenant. That's basically their only exposure. (laughs) So uh, if we look at the label today, and we assume that the basic ingredients have not changed a whole lot, which could very well not be the case, because these sodas get reformulated all the time, the rare South American plant is probably uh, gentian, I'm not sure if I'm pronouncing that correctly. Uh, it's an ingredient in uh, some bitters recipes. It's just a root. I've I've seen it marketed as a supplement. Mm-hmm. But the rare South American plant isn't cocaine? <laughs> no, no, not this one. Um, but, uh, as most people know, Coca-Cola famously used to contain cocaine leaves and cola nuts. Uh, it was marketed as a patent medicine. Pepsi-Cola had pepsin and cola nuts. And both of these have been reformulated over the years, of course. And uh, Dr. Pepper was originally a brain tonic. (laughs) Uh, One more that I really liked, uh, 7-Up is an interesting example of uh, actually having an active ingredient that maybe sometimes worked, but also maybe was extremely toxic. (laughs) Uh, Does anyone know what the original name of 7-Up is? It was really long. No idea. Bib label lithiated lemon lime soda. Oh, lithium. <laughs> yep. Wow. Yep. Totally mm. contained lithium citrate. I can kind of taste it. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> lithium can be a mood stabilizer and is still used today sometimes to treat bipolar disorder. But unfortunately, its active dose is very close to its toxic dose. So yep. people who are taking lithium have to go in for blood tests quite often to make sure that that's not creeping up into the bad zone. And it makes you feel like your brain's on fire. And if you drank too much 7-Up back in the day, you could get yourself a toxic dose of lithium. (laughs) (laughs) Uh, It was marketed originally with the slogan, takes the ouch out of grouch. (laughs) (laughs) Uh, And it was prescribed by doctors for gout, rheumatism, and kidney stones. And it was not until the mid-1940s that it was reformulated to no longer contain lithium. So I, for one, am glad that these patent medicines were invented because I love my soda. I am also glad that they no longer contain things that might kill me. Yep. Well, <laughs> well, not as quickly or gruesomely. Yeah. We'll, we'll put it that way. <laughs> to add on to, to Ashlyn's segment a little bit, before I went down a huge rabbit hole with bovanine, I was also going to look into petroleum jelly. Because we still have petroleum jelly. It's Vaseline. But originally, Samuel Keir in the 19th century, marketed petroleum jelly as a treatment for everything from ulcers to blindness. So it wasn't a topical application? It was topical, or you could drink it, or, or, eat it. Well, all of these medicines were either topical or oral. Yeah. It's, the Did idea it? that it could work either way is yeah. baffling. No one advocated for pouring soda on yourself, as far as I'm aware. <laughs> Keir was from Pennsylvania, and he was trying to use up the incredible amount of oil created by his salt wells. And in 1852, he launched his Cures Petroleum, or rock oil, as a 50-cent cure-all. It likely was very potent, as he later distilled the same petroleum and successfully sold it as lighter fluid. (laughs) But we still use Vaseline, and I know it can be taken internally. I haven't done it myself, but when I was a kid, our cat needed some sort of petroleum jelly-based product to cure her hairballs, and my mother went, wow, this is really expensive, and the cat just ate Vaseline every day. Yeah, it's not that far off from something like taking mineral oil for your constipation. Yeah, mm-hmm. it does taste awful, but... It works! And I think we're going to call it a day with an episode of everybody's favorite show, Capitalism Ruins Everything. Yay! <laughs> On this episode, we're talking about right-to-try laws and, with apologies to Joe Haldeman, the forever trial. 
In some respects, right-to-try laws are a modern extension of patent medicine. Uh, perhaps it's unfair to paint it all with, a, with such a broad brush, but uh, I'm getting ahead of myself here. So what are right-to-try laws? Has anyone heard of these? Uh, so that if you're dying of a horrible disease, you can try stuff that isn't otherwise approved because it might give you a shot? Yeah, that's basically the size of it. Uh, Right-to-try laws are designed to allow terminally ill patients access to medical treatments that have not been approved by the FDA, usually with the provision that the treatment has cleared at least phase one trials, uh, demonstrating uh, safety in humans, if not efficacy. The idea is that the approval process is a lengthy one by design, and that terminal patients have no time to waste. What good is waiting to make sure the drug works if they'll be dead by the time it's approved? If they're willing to take the risk, then, the argument goes, the government shouldn't be standing in their way. Advocates of these laws sometimes refer to themselves as Dallas Buyers Clubs, a reference to the 2013 Oscar-winning film starring Matthew McConaughey. I haven't seen the film myself, but I understand that it paints a rather rosy picture of unlicensed medical treatments. Here's how Dr. David Gorski described it over at Science-Based Medicine. Quote, it's basically the story of a brave maverick who bucks the FDA, complete with all the tropes about indifferent bureaucrats who don't care if these brave patients die. That might not be so bad if it weren't also riddled with inaccuracies and misrepresentations of the AIDS crisis in the 1980s. Worse, the real Woodruff, that's the, the character that McConaughey plays, the real Woodruff rejected the one truly promising drug at the time, AZT, as hopelessly toxic, and instead smuggled drugs like peptide T, which never panned out. Basically, what Woodruff appears to have smuggled as part of his activities for the Dallas Buyers Club was a mixture of useless supplements, experimental drugs that were never approved, and a handful of experimental drugs that showed promise. Meanwhile, the movie portrays the FDA as the implacable enemy of these sorts of activities, jackbooted thugs not unlike the stereotype promoted by health freedom quacks who don't like the FDA, preventing them from selling their quackery. <laughs> now, given the truly shameful way Reagan's government failed to respond to the AIDS crisis, Ugh. this kind of narrative is understandable if regrettable. Uh, but the film is highly fictionalized and doesn't provide a workable framework for public health policy. I mean, that's not what it's for. <laughs> to date, 41 states have passed right-to-try laws, and in 2017, federal right-to-try bills were introduced in both the Senate and the House of Representatives in the United States. The Senate bill passed in August 2017 after its sponsor threatened to block the FDA Reauthorization Act entirely if his right-to-try bill didn't go through. Congress passed their bill a few months later, and Right to Try became federal law when Trump signed the bill in May 2018. The American government is broken. It's only been law for that long? So, Right to Try has been federal law just since May, but it has been state law in several states since, I think, 2014. Okay, because I've definitely heard it for, I thought it was actually a lot longer than that, but... Uh, and Right to Try is an extension of other activities that mm -hmm. I'll get into later. Okay. Let's talk about some legitimate arguments in favor of right, these right-to-try laws. And first and foremost, if you've been diagnosed with a terminal illness, of course you'll want to try anything that promises the possibility of a cure. And I understand people not wanting to wait for the red tape if something looks promising. The problem is, as a patient, as a layperson, you have no way of knowing what actually looks promising. All you get is the survivorship bias. Mm-hmm of the people who tell you that it works. 
You don't hear the stories of the people who die in these trials. And you do hear the tales of the brave doctors who are uh, who are trying to uh, to get these medicines to the public if only the FDA weren't standing in their way. Ugh. The loudest advocates for right to try laws are indeed patient groups. And one of the more interesting arguments is actually the right to die argument. If patients are afforded the right to die, if patients if euthanasia is something that we allow doctors to participate in, then why don't we allow doctors to, with informed consent, uh, provide dubious or unproven medical treatments? If patients are allowed to choose that they die, can't they choose trying to live? So, so the, the argument goes. See any problems with these arguments, anyone? Yep. <laughs> Generally, the right to die laws like C-14, you're going to die in the at the most dire end of it, they're not going to give you much of a chance before then, and it's going to be as painless as possible. Can't so, say the same for for uh, medicines a are. patient at Brzezinski's clinic, for example. Yeah. You also have um, doctors talking about the their inability. One of the cornerstones of modern medicine and truly modern medicine is informed consent. Mm-hmm. And when you don't know what the risks are, and when you don't know whether this drug is effective, you can't provide informed consent. Mm -hmm. You can't negotiate informed consent with a patient. And that's a major ethical problem for a lot of doctors. I mentioned patient advocate groups before, and there are many. However, there is fairly convincing evidence that some number of these are AstroTurf campaigns uh, Mm -hmm. on the the part of people like Brzezinski, who I'll get into uh, a little bit later. And since these drugs haven't been approved, there's the serious risk that the drug will be ineffective or harmful. And that's something that's kind of baked into this legislation. It's baked into the rhetoric talking about it, but we shouldn't gloss over that. These drugs can have unintended complications when combined with other medications. Uh, They can have rare side effects that we haven't seen. They can just be totally ineffective. And even if you think that the treatments will be effective, Despite being called right-to-try laws, and this is something that uh, advocates of right-to-try will, uh, will talk about when, they, when they're disappointed by these laws that are going on the books, they're called right-to-try laws, but they don't actually provide patients with a right to try experimental therapies. What I'm saying is that there's no mandate for insurance companies to pay for them, and manufacturers aren't required to provide them. This legislation offers little but false hope. It's placebo legislation. And uh, then here's where things, in my opinion, get truly grim. Many of these laws are modeled after a legislative template created by the Goldwater Institute, which is a libertarian think tank. And these laws are created as a deliberate attempt to undermine FDA protections. Because right-to-try laws do not require pharmaceutical companies or medical clinics to provide their experimental treatments for free, these institutions are able to turn a profit by selling their treatments without having to demonstrate that they will actually work. Essentially, we have predatory for-profit medical clinics preying on the desperation of dying people, taking them for all they're worth while providing medical care for which there is no evidence for efficacy. These laws reduce FDA oversight of drug regulation, undermining what little confidence patients can actually have in a for-profit medical system. 
Under FDA regulations, sure, you can profit off our sickness, but at least we have some reason to believe you're trying to make us better. Somehow it never even occurred to me that the companies would make them pay for it. I guess it just, I assumed that if they were going to try it before it was even tested, the company would just f***ing give it to them. But it's America. But of course that's not true. Of course. Of course. Critics of right-to-try laws argue that these laws also provide cover for medical quackery. I'll, I'll quote Dr. Gorski again. It's also important to remember that the real purpose of right-to-try laws is not to help patients, but to neuter the FDA's ability to regulate certain drugs, consistent with the source of this legislation, which is rooted in libertarian politics that claims that deregulation is a cure for everything. And this brings us to Stanislaw Brzezinski's forever trial. Brzezinski, who claims that his anti-neoplaston therapy can effectively cure cancer, has been bilking patients out of money for two decades. While antineoplaston therapy is not approved by the FDA, Brzezinski is permitted to administer his treatment to patients in the course of a clinical trial, and he has recently taken to using Texas's right-to-try laws to provide cover for his operation. To this end, he is engaged in a seemingly endless series of trials on the subject, none of which reach conclusive positive results. But that doesn't stop him from charging patients tens of thousands of dollars for the privilege of participating in his trials. According to the American Cancer Society, quote, Treatments can cost from $7,000 to $9,500 per month or more. Brzezinski's clinic requires patients to provide a deposit before their treatment starts, with their website stating, quote, Since we are classified as out-of-network, we are unable to accept Medicare, Medicaid, and any HMO insurance. Gross. This trial loophole allows Brzezinski to sell his ineffective treatment to desperate, dying people bankrupting their families in the process in a method of operation that will surely be used as a template for other quacks in the future. He also has uh, legal attack dogs who threaten lawsuits constantly uh, to any, uh, anyone who is critical of him online. The Texas Medical Board has moved on more than one occasion to strip Brzezinski of his medical license, but as of yet, this has not taken place. How? How has this not happened? He has a lot of patients who swear by his treatment. I mean, spontaneous remission does happen. And so you have a, a small number of people who are still around. Right. Or even people whose family members have died but are still bought in to Brzezinski's right. nonsense. They, they got an extra week or month or whatever. So, they, so they claim. Conventional treatment. So they claim. It's, and but, these people put pressure on legislators. But since when do, like, the medical college is not a legislator. Like, it, maybe they work differently there, but here they're self-regulating bodies, but they're not elected. Like, they're elected from within. Sometimes the things I hear, it's like, these are supposed to be people that are incredibly well-educated supposedly scientific minds, how have you not stripped this person of their license yet? I do not understand that. Because, like, and that's completely different from going through the judicial system or something. But it's just, that's astounding to me that they just haven't done that. Like, at what point is good medicine determined by how many patients say he's such a great doctor? It doesn't mm. matter if he's doing shitty stuff that mm -hmm. doesn't work, that can't be backed up. It doesn't matter how many people love him. Brzezinski's clinical trials were briefly put on hold following the death of a six-year-old uh, of severe hypernatremia oh. attributed to Brzezinski's treatment, but the trials resumed shortly thereafter. 
these trials continue, and his patients continue to die, usually of their cancers, and further attempts at reining him in are liable to be stymied by the new protections afforded by this right-to-try legislation. The libertarian dream of deregulation, of a world without oversight by bodies like the FDA and Health Canada, would have consumers relying only on their own savviness, and likely the benevolence of large corporations and their marketing departments, to decide which medical treatments will be effective and prevent themselves from being taken advantage of. The idea that lay people could be able to navigate the complicated world of healthcare without effective regulation is a fantasy, and the history of patent medicine itself gives the lie to this narrative. Before we go, I'd like to let everyone know that Ian James, our music director and erstwhile panelist, has a new album out called The Broken Among Us. I'll put links in the show notes. What are we talking about next month, Ashlyn? So, Jem used to do this cool segment called Where's My Jetpack, and we haven't done that for a really long time. And so I would like to talk about science fiction technology that has become real. Sounds great. Awesome. Cool. Let's see how you end that one on a downer. <laughs> I'm sure you can do it. <laughs> yeah, I'm sure I can. I don't call him the fun sponge for nothing, okay? <laughs> I thought those were wafers now. <laughs> Well, good night, everybody. <laughs> Never thought you'd play out this way. A situation that I helped create. Blame is like wine. Take this burden It is mine to bear I got none to share There is no chance but This could be something you did It must have been something I
Life, the Universe, and Everything Else is produced by Ashlyn Noble and Jem Newman. If you want to support the show, the best way to do that is with a review on Apple Podcasts or Stitcher, or by sharing an episode with a friend. Original music is produced by Ian James, and this episode was edited by Jem Newman. This is obviously off the record, but bummer. Like I said, I, I gotta, I gotta end every episode on a downer, you guys. <laughs> no bummers. Well, you set up. You, you could have this. reordered that. You didn't have to. I don't know. I feel like the the, the future a... of patent medicine is a is a yes. good yeah. yeah. It's a good flow. It's still a bummer. It is, but yeah, soda could have been a really good. And on a lighter <laughs> note, Seven Up. <laughs> now lithium free. <laughs> Well, maybe they are what's left of the <laughs> Bush's Fluid Foods. <laughs> Fuck you. <laughs> just keep saying that over and over, Laura. I am. I'm just going to lean over and she's half asleep. I'm going to Fluid Foods. <laughs> That's how I get divorced. <laughs> yeah. Lauren, how'd you get all these bruises? <laughs> I'm not drinking my bovinine. <laughs> Saved our recording equipment from a spit take. <laughs> After uh, driving to Thunder Bay, we often will just, in the middle of the night, lean over to one another and go, <laughs> Are you aware of moose? Are you aware of moose at night? There are signs saying, Be aware of moose at night. Along the Trans Canada Highway. Be aware of moose. <laughs> moose, they exist. <laughs> All right, Ashlyn. Take us home, please. <laughs> we still haven't done my segment yet. Open Didn't you just house. do Radathor? No, that was his brief introduction. Oh. <laughs> <laughs> Don't you remember recording with Jim? I mean, I love you. I know yeah. you were tired. <laughs> remember, right? it's blood, salt, lube, and booze. Oh. Sounds like my Saturday night. What? <laughs> what? I was still gonna make that joke in this article. I'm so glad I didn't. Jem, you should be ashamed of yourself. <laughs> <laughs>